So yesterday was a big day, in that it was one of about four days where I watched televised sports during a given year. Michigan State and University of Michigan once again fighting for bragging rights and a large statue of Paul Bunyan. I don't, I don't understand some of these things. But Aaron and I watched the game together, and you know, as it got into the fourth quarter and as things turned toward, and I like the dark side, I don't know how you put it, we, we began to lose hope, and we thought, oh, this thing looks like it's probably about over. They're behind, and the clock is ticking down, and my wife said, remember, they've pulled it out at the last minute a lot of times before. I said, you're right, they have, and so I, I didn't lose hope, and then they scored again, and they got the extra point. I said, it's, it did, that's it, and we both knew it, it was over. And then, of course, when U of M took a knee a couple times in a row and ran out the clock, it became official. Game was over. University of Michigan had won. MSU had lost. It's cut and dried. It's over. It's done. That game cannot be changed. I'm sure many MSU fans, many people in East Lansing right now wish there was some way they could go back and reanalyze and, and look at the game from another angle and have some different perspective on it. But to do that would be to live in denial. And it would be a little bit sad, frankly. When it's over, it's over. And the winner is the winner, and the loser is the loser. But I think we see in this passage that in the kingdom of God, we want to be a little more careful about determining what was a win, a victory, and what was a loss. What was a defeat? Because what looks like defeat, in retrospect, can actually clearly be God at work bringing about his purposes, bringing about victory and glory for his name. Case in point, last week, Mimi had to read 600,000 verses, versus Brett's four today. Uh, <laughs> it's just luck of the draw. And, uh, and we saw the story of Stephen's martyrdom, the first martyr in the Christian church, this man who died for his faith in Christ. This was, you know when someone dies by random violence or something, and it always turns out to be the nicest, kindest, most giving person in the community, and they do these big retrospectives, and everyone says, why? Why him? Why her? Why would anyone want to hurt this person or wish them ill? This is what Stephen was. He was filled with grace and power, with wisdom and faith, and with the Holy Spirit. He helped widows. He brought them food. He made sure everyone got what they had coming, what they needed for that day. He did wonders and miracles and healed people. He proclaimed the good news. He was fearless and faithful to the very end, even forgiving those people who murdered him while they murdered him. This is the kind of man I would like to know. This is the kind of man I would like to be. And the church must have been asking, how could they kill him. And this begins a new chapter in the story of the early church in the book of Acts. Because this is a new kind of persecution in several ways. First of all, the former persecution had simply consisted of threats and floggings and throwing someone in prison overnight to see if you could intimidate them. But now we see they are, they're ready to spill more blood. The murder of Jesus Christ did not satiate their bloodlust. In fact, as we see with Paul, then called Saul in, in this text, he actually it fuels his rage. 
his murderous desire to snuff out the church. Standing there watching Stephen be stoned to death, watching the cloaks of everyone involved, he finds his hatred only growing. So this is escalating, first of all. Secondly, the former persecution had been against the apostles. So if you were somebody who had been in the upper room even on the day of Pentecost, but you weren't one of the twelve, it hadn't fully directly touched you yet. Now it was hanging over your head. It was there. It was a cause for concern. But now we see they're killing people that aren't even part of the core group, the twelve, the leaders. Now Stephen, well, he was middle management at best in the church, right? He was a regular guy. He was a church member. He was a deacon, not an apostle. And if they would kill Stephen, they would kill anybody. People begin to realize this. And thirdly, the enemies of the church are now united, working together. And that's new as well. We, we see uh, that whenever somebody comes together in unity and puts arms around each other and says, you know what, let's put the old grudges behind us, we have a tendency to want to celebrate that, but it's not always worth celebrating. Remember in Luke 23, arraying himself in splendid clothing, Herod sent Jesus back to Pilate, and Herod and Pilate became friends with each other that very day, for before this they had been at enmity with one another. So, so they're coming together, and in the same way we see different sects of Judaism that were at odds and would always butt heads now saying let's put that behind us and join forces against this church because it's not going down easily. I mean just a few chapters earlier Peter had tossed the doctrine of the resurrection into the midst of the Sanhedrin like a grenade and it turned them on each other and distracted them and and he was the puppet master over here but at this point, their hatred of Christ's followers is stronger than their old feuds and rivalries and doctrinal differences. And so we see a growing persecution in intensity, growing in scope, and growing in the number of people who are seeking the destruction of the church and joining together into a large and powerful enemy. Perhaps what did this was Stephen's words about the temple. He makes it clear that God does not need a house to live in and be served by human hands like all the other gods, that he was with his people before the temple and will be with the people after the temple. Jesus had said this, that the temple would be destroyed. Uh, Brett read that this morning from, from the gospel. Not only that the temple would be destroyed, but then he ties that together with the notion of being dragged before governors and kings and councils and questioned and, and, and flogged and... and in all of this, he says, remember, I will be with you. And he is. He is with them. But all of this is a very big deal because it's not some internal squabble that will die down with time. They see in these words about the temple, this is something new. This is something we haven't seen before. It will take Rome quite some time to recognize that Christianity is not just another sect of Judaism. Because there was a lot of different, diverse groups within that broad umbrella. You had Zealots, you had Sadducees, you had Essenes who were out in the, the wilderness, you had Pharisees, and we had probably a dozen others that we don't know much about. But even before Rome has any sense that there's something new going on, the Jewish leadership looks down and says, this group is different. All the stuff that we have been hanging our hope on and saying, this is how we'll achieve eternal life, they're turning away from it and instead clinging only to Jesus Christ. It's not going away. And so they double down on their persecution. 
And the result is that the people, we're told twice here, scattered. And as they scattered, Saul of Tarsus pursued them, chased after them, sniffing them out and hunting them down and dragging them off to prison, starting the first inquisition of the early church. In fact, this might be said, the the end of the last passage and this passage here, to be the story of the origin of St. Paul. I hope I didn't spoil it for anybody. This guy Saul is going to become the, the apostle who writes the majority of the books of the New Testament. Luke's original audience knew that. Theophilus knew that. Everyone knew that. Paul was famous. This is his origin story, and it's maybe a little more interesting than the origin of the deacons that we saw a few weeks ago. We saw last week that while they were stoning Stephen, Saul took a leadership position and organized it and watched the coats even. And in verse 1 of chapter 8, we read, And Saul approved of his execution, meaning Stephen's. Now, that sounds a little tepid. He approved of it. He didn't object to it. Some translations even say he he consented to it, as if he said, "Eh, okay, go ahead. But this word here actually is very strong. It means to lend hearty approval to, or even to take pleasure in the execution of Stephen. It's confirmed here in the rest of this text that Saul is not the passive coat check boy that we sometimes make him out to be early on in the book of Acts. Rather, he is a violent, fanatical crusader against anyone who confesses faith in Jesus Christ, and he pursues this goal with all the fire of his own faith. Jesus didn't just tell the church to expect persecution. He said, expect that those who persecute you will think they're doing God a great service in seeking your destruction. Paul will later on sum up the way he lived his life during this season in Galatians 1.13 with these words, For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And in verse 3, that's exactly what we're told is happening here. Saul was ravaging the church, entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. He was ravaging. This is what we call imperfect tense in the Greek. It means not, not just he did it once or he did it a few times. He ravaged. Or as the NIV says, he began to destroy. But this is an ongoing situation. He was ravaging the church. And that word ravaging, that, this is the, the same word in the Greek Old Testament, the Septuagint. It's used again and again to describe the way an, a wild animal destroys its prey. Saul here is a predator, and the church of Jesus Christ is his prey. And yet, in every attempt to destroy the church, he finds that he is only bringing about what God wants for them. Saul will later serve Christ with all his heart. He'll live and die for his churches. But now, even as an enemy of Christ, he is against his will, accidentally helping the cause of the gospel. The more he persecutes the more they spread. This is one of the laws of thermodynamics, right? The higher the heat, the greater the expansion. Well, now we see God's sovereign hand at work. Because earlier in Acts 1.8, Jesus said right before his ascension, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Well, they hadn't yet done this until Saul starts his persecution. Now, where do they go? They scatter. 
Where? Judea and Samaria. And that word scatter, which we see in both in verse 1 and verse 4, it's an interesting word. There, there's a number of words for scattering, of course, but this one doesn't have to do with kind of haphazard, random scattering. There, there, there are words in Greek that would indicate, like, you know, if there's a crowd of people and the police come and, and they've got tear gas and they say, you better disperse and they all scatter. Is that group going to reconvene tomorrow at 9? No, that, that group is never going to exist as such again, right? We're scattering ashes. If you take the ashes of a loved one and scatter them into the river or, or off a cliff like they wanted, and you go, oh, what if they meant St. Louis, Missouri, not St. Louis, Michigan? There's no way to get them back and do it again. You've scattered them, they're gone. That's not the word here, though. This is the word that Jesus uses in the parable of the sower when he talks about sowing seed. And it, 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 diaspero, it, it actually means to, to sow throughout, to scatter seed. It's an intentional word. You scatter or toss or sow the seed so that it will later grow and germinate and get bigger and bear fruit. Diaspero, that's by the way where we get our word diaspora. You know that one? It means dispersion. We talk about the diaspora of people who have spread out over the globe or throughout different areas. The Jewish diaspora was a punishment, right? As the people were dragged away from the promised land and brought to different lands, the Jewish diaspora flew in the face of the mission of God's people, which was to be a light to the nations, shining out from the temple in Jerusalem, drawing people in to God's glory. But for the church, this diaspora, this dispersing, this scattering, it's a blessing in disguise because his his rule for them, his goal for them, his mission for them was to go out. Not to stay there and shine, but to go bringing the light of God's glory with them because they're all indwelled with the Holy Spirit and God's his presence is with all of them, not just in the temple in Jerusalem. As Stephen has reminded us, that temple is about to be no more and it is obsolete at this point. And so when Peter is writing to Christians Scattered throughout, he says, to those who are elect exiles of the diaspora. They're elect, meaning God has chosen them from before the foundation of the world to save them, but they're also elect exiles in the sense that God has, has willed that they be scattered over the earth. And Saul, thinking he'll destroy the church, basically picks up the dandelion and goes, and there it goes. He's not getting those seeds back. They're going to land. And where they land, they're going to begin to grow. And before you know it, there's an awful lot more of these churches and these Christians. And they're everywhere. And in a sense, the church needed this to happen. When you look back and say, oh, that was a defeat, this first martyr. He couldn't win them over because they plugged their ears and shut at the top of their lungs and killed them, and he died. And it's a tragedy, and of course it is a tragedy, but God takes what was meant for evil and uses it for good. Because the people had been told, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth, and yet the story so far has completely taken place in Jerusalem, right? No one's left yet. All in all, things are going pretty well. The Lord was adding to their number day by day. The community was looking good. Giving was up, 
right? You had big givers like Barnabas selling houses and fields and laying the money at the apostles' feet. The, the programs were going strong, especially now that Stephen and the other six deacons were in charge, making sure everything was equitable and efficient. Things were going well to the point where not only has no one left Jerusalem to bring the gospel to the rest of Judea and into Samaria and to the ends of the earth, but it seems like many who were there visiting for Pentecost have remained. They're using the old model. Come into the center. Jesus said, no, I've turned the thing backwards. It's explosive now. Go out from the center. That's how I will bring my kingdom to the very ends of the earth because my rule extends to the very ends of the earth. We see here another principle from physics. Objects in motion tend to stay in motion. Objects at rest tend to stay at rest unless acted on by an outside force. And they were at rest in Jerusalem. And that is not necessarily good. We often pray for peace and safety and comfort and ease, and yet comfort and ease are often the things that cause Christians and cause churches to stagnate and calcify. Perhaps instead we should pray, Lord, give me a shove out of my comfort zone. You remember that old buzzword? That was a good one. My comfort zone. You can almost see it around me, right? Where, where it's marked off. Lord, push me out of there so that I will carry out this great commission because I am content to just stay and wait. Give me a shove. Careful when you pray these things. God has a tendency to answer these prayers. But I, I would almost compare this to the Tower of Babel. The people, uh, they, they were growing in number after the flood. God said, look, the, the idea is that you will not stay in one place, but you will go out across the entire world and repopulate. And they said, but it's comfortable here. And... We can accomplish an awful lot if we stay all in one place and make a great name for ourselves. I know. We build a tower until it touches the dome of heaven. Part of me always wonders why God didn't just let them try. Keep building, keep building, keep building. He, he, he was merciful, frustrated their language so that he caused them. He, he all but forced them to go out into different areas and repopulate and refill the earth. But they'd been content to huddle together. They were comfortable and the church was too, even with the threat of persecution. It took God removing that comfort for them to say, okay, we'll take that next step. And yet even in the midst of that, him removing that comfort, he is comforting them. Because he has sent the Holy Spirit, which Jesus calls throughout the end of the Gospel of John, the comforter. He's with them. And their comfort wasn't that they were being kept from suffering. Rather, their comfort like the apostles' comfort was that he had found them worthy to suffer for the lame, and more than that, that their suffering wasn't in vain. It's a big difference between suffering for a cause and suffering for no reason. And this church, like every church, knows that their suffering, their trials, are not in vain. That the church is going to benefit and God's glory amongst the people will increase. I would suggest that most stories... Even beginning with the stories of scriptures, most stories that show someone doing something great for God's glory and for God's name begin with discomfort, with, with unease. But we, we look at Moses, right? He is comfortable. Oh, why don't you leave Egypt? Go spend 40 years over there. They're not going to make you come back to Egypt. Very uncomfortable. Come back where you were, where they sought your death, where Pharaoh wanted to kill you because of what had happened. Come back to this place and face what you're afraid of. 
We think of Jonah. I don't want to go there. I want to stay here. I'm not going. I'm not going. In fact, I'll go in the other direction. Next thing he knows, shipwrecked, swallowed by a whale. Discomfort. You ever been swallowed by a whale? Oh, the smell is terrible. But God's at work here even in what looks to be a defeat. Right? Robert Fawcett puts it very simply and dispassionately as always in his, his uh, single volume commentary. He says, God overrules the suffering of the church for the progress of the gospel. The church is suffering and he turns it to his use. This is, again, a theme of Scripture that comes up more often than not. Peter brought it up in Acts chapter 2 when he said, This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Or as Stephen brought up, the, the story of Joseph, he says it even more succinctly. You meant it for evil, God meant it for good, so I'm not worried. Yes, you wanted to come at me and and destroy me out of hatred and jealousy and avarice and and all these other things, but God took that and he meant it for good. And we see this throughout the history of the church. Think of the the Roman church as they say, we got to deal with this this monk who he keeps bringing up these ideas. He's toying with the notion of salvation by grace through faith. What if we... We make him study the scriptures. We make him become a doctor of the scriptures. Then all of his time is going to be spent with his face in a book. He'll be in an ivory tower. He won't be a problem anymore. Yeah, right. That's like giving a dog a bone. Here you go, Luther. Learn the scriptures in their original language. God used it for good, for the reformation of his church. And in this case, yes, the church goes underground, but not to hibernate. God is at work. He's using them. The temptation would be lie low until the heat kind of blows over, but rather they strike while the iron is hot. As they go, they're evangelizing. I say evangelizing because where it says they proclaim the word, the word is euangelizo. That's where we get our word evangelize. It means to good news someone. To take the word good news or gospel and use it as a verb. This gospel, this thing that had cost them so much, they're proclaiming it as good news even as they flee for their lives. These people were missionaries first, refugees second. And if you've been here at Judson for any amount of time, you've already seen that play itself out before as well. Those who have fled somewhere and wherever they went, it wasn't primarily as someone who was a refugee, but as someone who was bringing the gospel. And God was just determining where they would go next with it. And where they went, they established churches in their homes. They made contacts in the synagogue and the marketplace and and brought the gospel into those communities. They were proclaiming it to anyone who would listen. Later on, the Saul would say, be ready in season and out of season. Well, this is classic out of season. When times are tough, you preach the gospel. When times are good, you preach the gospel. And no one had to command them to do this. It wasn't a rule they had to follow. It was a privilege for these people. We're told that everyone but the apostles fled. The the apostles remained. Many have asked, why would that be? Was it that suddenly the heat was off them because it was on Stephen and his group? Maybe there was more persecution of the Greek-speaking Christians and these Hebraic Jews could sort of blend in? Well, that's not the case. Anyone remember who the next martyr is going to be? It's going to be James, certainly a Hebraic Jew who follows Jesus. No, it seems to me they decided to stay to encourage the persecuted church that God is still in control. 
But a, a side effect of that is that we see God made this promise through Jesus to the apostles. You'll be my witnesses in Samaria and Judea to the ends of the world. But it's first carried out, not through the apostles, but through the deacons and through the everyday church members as they go about their lives. All of us are equally part of the body. And as we look at the way this book of Acts continues, the apostles sort of fade to the background most of the time. We have this story about Stephen, one of the seven. The next person who's focused on is going to be Philip, also one of the seven. And then we get Saul and his conversion. And we find that the church is not built on a, a hierarchy where we serve those who are at the top, but rather it's upside down. We serve one another. We are the hands and feet. And they are opening their mouths wherever they go. Now there's an old-timey saying that the three things you don't bring up in polite conversation are religion, politics, and money, right? It's impolite. It's impolite to bring these things up. Notice which one's first. Religion, right? Always good for an argument. And in our world today, in our culture, it's considered beyond impolite. It's, it's tacky at best and, and hate speech at worst to tell someone Jesus is the way. The way, the truth, and the life. The only way. And all other purported ways to God are false. That's impolite. But are we more concerned with being polite or with being faithful? That's the question here. They were more concerned with being faithful than being safe. They were more concerned with being faithful than maintaining either their lives in Jerusalem and all they had acquired or even their lives on this earth. My question this morning is when you're scattered, when your plans are scattered, when your life is scattered, when things come in and knock you off your feet or off the path that you thought you were on, do you ask, Lord, how can I extend the kingdom where I've now landed with this new situation? When uprooted, do you remind yourself that you're still rooted in Christ and look to bear fruit wherever you are? I confess that when I'm scattered, my first thought is often, God, end my discomfort. I don't like this. Let's go back to the way things were. I don't like change. Not God use this, this situation. God use these trials. God use even my suffering to build your church and glorify your name. But that's what we see in the early church. We're struggling. We're suffering. And God is using it. And we're praising God for that. I think this is what Romans 8, 28 is about. All things work together for the good of those who love him. It's often misused. It's used as a band-aid when someone's hurt. Hey, don't worry. God's using this for your good. Eventually, it won't hurt. It'll feel great. Right? Eventually, this, this is going to, you're going to look back at, at all this and say, well, that's what I would have chosen anyway. Not necessarily. What we see here, what happened when Stephen was killed? They didn't all smile and say, hey, it's fine. God will work this out for good. No, they buried him and mourned him with a loud lament because it was something worth lamenting. A good man had died. And by the way, making a lamentation and crying out in sorrow over someone who had been put to death by the council, that was dangerous. That was illegal. But these men, it says, were devout. They weren't thinking about how their lives were about to be turned upside down as they left Jerusalem. They weren't thinking about how they were going to have to leave behind their possessions and, and their professional reputation and everything they'd built. 
They, they weren't thinking about that. They, they, they were thinking, we can be the hands and feet of Christ as we go forward. I once heard a story about a man who was, who was a king in a hostile land. He had his little kingdom, and he had a right-hand man that was always there with him. And he kept him around because the guy was so very positive. Something bad would happen, and the guy would look at it and go, this is good. And then he would twist it, spin it a little bit so that it seemed good. And that included any time the king made a mistake. He'd say, oh, but this is good. And it was nice to have him around. He kept, he kept things positive until one day they were out hunting, and the man, his assistant, handed him a gun, and it wasn't loaded properly. And he fired and it blew his thumb off. And he was staring at his hand in shock, and his thumb was gone. And the guy walked up and looked at his hand and said, yeah, but this is good. And he wheeled on him. He said, how can you say this is good, you idiot? You blew my thumb off. This is very, very bad. And he had him thrown in prison. So sometime later, he was on another hunting expedition, and he wandered into the territory of some cannibals. And they kidnapped him and dragged him away and they, they tied him to a stake and they piled wood around him. They were about to cook him. And then one of them noticed his missing thumb. And part of their superstition was they didn't eat anything that wasn't whole. So they released him and they let him go. And when he got back to his kingdom, he went into the, the prison and he, he released his friend and he said, I'm going to restore you to your post. I see now in retrospect that it was good because if you hadn't loaded that gun incorrectly and my thumb hadn't got blown off, I'd be dead right now. And he said, I want to apologize to you for in my rage and anger locking you up like that. That wasn't right. And his, and his assistant said, no, that was good. He said, how can you say it was good for you to be in prison? He said, because if I hadn't been in here, I would have been with you. And I got both my thumbs. That's a cute little story. It's kind of funny. But it wouldn't be a comfort to you when the bottom's fallen out of your life, when you get that diagnosis, when you get that pink slip, when you're finding your plans scattered. It wouldn't be a comfort to you, just like when someone takes Romans 8.28 and tries to use it as a Band-Aid. Hey, don't worry. This is good. Later on, you'll see. It's actually for the best for you. God works all things together for the good of those who worship him. This is good. Put a smile on your face and pretend it doesn't hurt. That's not what we're reading in Romans 8, 28. We've got to let God define what is good. And the good of those who love him is the good of the church. The good of those who love him is the spreading of the gospel and the proclaiming of his glory, the death and resurrection of Jesus. It's people coming to faith. And when something happens in our lives and we look at it and go, how could everything get so scattered and destroyed? Our first thought ought to be, but God, I let you define good, even as I am mourning this with a loud lament. In Philippians 1, Paul writes, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. He was in bad situation. He was in prison. He was suffering but it was working for the good of those who love God because it was advancing the gospel. We're going to find in Acts 11 that the effect of this stoning of Stephen went even further than Judea and Samaria. I told you before already that at the very beginning, Jesus says this is going to be the path, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the ends of the earth, and that the book itself is going to follow that very outline. 
Well, in Acts 11:19 we read, Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. And then in verse 20, But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists, also preaching the Lord Jesus. This starts the ball rolling, the ripples in the pond, to the point where it doesn't just push them onto the next point on the agenda, which is Judea and Samaria, but it pushes them forward to the ends of the world, even the bringing the gospel to the Greeks, to the Gentiles, to people who would have never entered the mind of Peter and John left to themselves to bring the gospel to them. This is God at work in the midst of and through the suffering of his church. It's an example for us of how to think of suffering and trials. Not to dress the wound lightly. Remember that from, from the Old Testament? Those who dress my wound lightly saying, peace, peace, when there is no peace. It doesn't help to lie to ourselves. Oh, this is good. No, no, no. Don't worry about it. Keep on smiling. You're going to eventually crack and you're going to break down. You go that way. That smile gets more and more plastic until you look like a psychopath. No, we acknowledge this is bad. This is bad. This is, this is a result of sin in the world. This is wicked. This is evil. But God is still at work, working it out for the good of those who love him. God is at work. What they mean for evil, he'll use for good. God is spreading his kingdom and bringing the gospel. And how can I see that? It may offer cold comfort at first, but it's comfort all the same. And the comfort or the Holy Spirit within us We'll apply it to our hearts and our souls. If we will, like those early Christians, remember, go out and preach the gospel. And if you're scattered this way, you preach it over here. And if you're scattered that way, you preach it over there. The good thing is the good news. And God is always at work, working out everything for the good of those who love Him. Heavenly Father, we do thank You for this example of righteous suffering, of patient endurance, of those who were lamenting a horrible tragedy that befell them and then grabbing the opportunity that that tragedy gave them. Lord, we pray that we would remember that you are at work even when evil people set about to do evil things, even when seemingly random and chaotic tragedies come in and uproot our lives and the lives of those whom we love. Lord, you are at work in those things. And Lord, we pray that we would feel free to lament them, to, to weep as Jesus wept at the death of those whom he loved and at the apostasy of Jerusalem, but then to remember that all is not lost, to remember that we might look at the scoreboard and see a defeat, but you are a God who can take evil and use even it for good. And Lord, may we never forget that and never lose hope. In your holy name we pray. Amen.